Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Narayanam Namaskritya Naram Chaiva Narotamam Devim Sarasatim Vyasam Tato Jayam Udiraye we're so lucky to be reading the Srimad Bhagavatam here in the middle of Silicon Valley during Kartik. It feels really special. Thank you very much for joining from various places around California and the world. And we're taking up at verse number second canto, second chapter. We're on the first verse? Okay. There it is. Translation. Sri Shukadeva Goswami said, Formerly, prior to the manifestation of the cosmos, Lord Brahma, by meditating on the Virat Rupa, regained his lost consciousness by appeasing the Lord. Thus, he was able to rebuild the creation as it was before. Purport. The example cited herein of Sri Brahmaji is one of forgetfulness. Brahmaji is the incarnation of the Brahmaji is the incarnation of one of the <laughs> Okay. Brahmaji is the incarnation of one of the mundane attributes of the Lord. Being the incarnation of the passion mode of material nature, he is empowered by the Lord to generate the beautiful material manifestation. Yet due to his being one of the numerous living entities, he is apt to forget the art of his creative energy. This forgetfulness of the living being, beginning from Brahma down to the lowest insignificant ant, is a tendency which can be counteracted by meditation on the Virat Rupa of the Lord. This chance is available in the human form of life, and if a human being follows the instruction of Srimad Bhagavatam and begins to meditate on the Virat Rupa, then revival of his pure consciousness and counteraction of the tendency to forget his eternal relationship with the Lord can follow simultaneously. And as soon as this forgetfulness is removed, the Vyavas the Vyavasaya Bhuti, as mentioned here and in the Bhagavad Gita 241, follows at once. This ascertained knowledge of the living being leads to loving service to the Lord, which the living being requires. The kingdom of God is unlimited. Therefore, the number of the assisting hands of the Lord's Lord is also unlimited. The Bhagavad Gita 13.14 asserts that the Lord has his hands, legs, eyes, and mouths in every nook and corner of his creation. This means that the expansions of differentiated parts and parcels called jivas or living entities are assisting hands of the Lord. And all of them are meant for rendering a particular pattern of service to the Lord. 
The conditioned soul, even in the position of a Brahma, forgets this by the influence of the illusory material energy generated out of false egoism. One can counteract such false egoism by invoking God consciousness. Liberation means getting out of the slumber of forgetfulness and becoming situated in the real loving service of the Lord as exemplified in the case of Brahma. The service of Brahma The service of Brahma is a sample of service in liberation distinguished from the so-called altruistic um, services full of mistakes and forgetfulness. Liberation is never inaction, but service without human mistakes. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hari Rama, Hari Rama, Rama Rama, Hari Hari, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari Hari, Hari Rama, Hari Rama, Rama Rama, Hari Hari. And distributing books with my friend Bopadev. Probably sometimes he'd show people the book and they go, Well, what is it? And he goes, It's a new invention. It's called the book. <laughs> he is one of the most sarcastic people I ever met. <laughs> you might want to look into it. It's a thing called reading. Two, two, two. Two, two, two. Here we go. The way of presentation of the Vedic sounds is so bewildering that it directs the intelligence of the people to meaningless things like the heavenly kingdoms. The conditioned souls hover in dreams of such heavenly illusory pleasures, but actually they do not relish any tangible happiness in such places. Like Cancun. Purport. The conditioned soul is always engaged in laying out plans for happiness within the material world, even up to the end of the universal limit. He is not even satisfied with available amenities on this earth planet where he has exploited the resources of nature to the best of his ability. He wants to go to the moon or the planet Venus to exploit resources there. But the Lord has warned us in the Bhagavad Gita 8.16 about the worthlessness of all the innumerable planets of this universe, as well as those planets within other systems. There are innumerable universes and also innumerable planets in each of them. But none of them is immune to the chief miseries of material existence, namely the pangs of birth, the pangs of death, the pangs of old age and the pangs of disease. The Lord says that even the topmost planet known as the Brahmaloka or Satyaloka, and what to speak of other planets like the heavenly planets, is not a happy land for residential purposes due to the presence of material pangs as above mentioned. Conditioned souls are strictly under the laws of fruit of activities 
And as such, they sometimes go up to Brahmaloka and again come down to Patalaloka as if they were unintelligent children on a merry-go-round. The real happiness is in the kingdom of God where no one has to undergo the pangs of material existence. Therefore, the Vedic ways of fruitive activities for the living entities are misleading. One thinks of a superior way of life in this country or that, or on this planet or another, but nowhere in the material world can he fulfill his real desire of life, namely eternal life, full intelligence, and complete bliss. Indirectly, Srila Shukadeva Goswami affirms that Maharaj Prikshit, in the last stage of life, should not desire to transfer himself to the so-called heavenly planets, but should prepare himself for going back home, back to Godhead. None of the material planets, nor the amenities available there for living conditions is everlasting. Therefore, one must have a factual reluctance to enjoy such temporary happiness as they afford. And when I give you a sign, you can write down the section because I'm trying to collect some of these things. Thank you. Text number three. For this reason, the enlightened person should endeavor only for the minimum necessities of life while in the world of names. He should be intelligently fixed and never endeavor for unwanted things, being competent to perceive practically that all such endeavors are merely hard labor for nothing. Hare Krishna. Okay, that uh, factual reluctance was from 222. Now we're on 223. Okay, I'm dealing with highly educated people here. Purport, the Bhagavad Dharma or the cult of Srimad Bhagavatam is perfectly distinct from the way of fruit of activities which are considered by the devotees to be merely a waste of time. The whole universe, or for that matter, all material existence is moving on as jagat, simply for planning business to make one's position very comfortable or secure, although everyone sees that this existence is neither comfortable nor secure and can never become comfortable or secure at any stage of development. Those who are captivated by the illusory advancement of material civilization following the way of phantasmagoria, you can look it up, are certainly madmen. The whole material creation is a jugglery of names only. In fact, it is nothing but a bewildering creation of matter like earth, water, and fire. The buildings, furniture, cars, bungalows, mills, factories, industries, peace, war, or even the highest perfection of material science, namely atomic energy and electronics, are all simply bewildering names of material elements with their concomitant reactions of the three modes. Since the devotee of the Lord knows them perfectly well, he is not interested in creating unwanted things for a situation which is not at all reality, but simply names of no more significance than the babble of sea waves. 
The great kings, leaders, and soldiers fight with one another in order to perpetuate their names in history. They are forgotten in due course of time, and they make a place for another era in history. But the devotee realizes how much history and historical persons are useless products of flickering time. The fruit of worker aspires after a big fortune in the matter of wealth, women, and worldly adoration. But those who are fixed in perfect reality are not at all interested in such false things. For them, it is all a waste of time. Since every second of human life is important, an enlightened man should be very careful to utilize time cautiously. One second of human life wasted in the vain research of planning for happiness in the material world can never be replaced, even if one spends millions of coins of gold. Therefore, the transcendentalist desiring freedom from the clutches of Maya or the illusory activities of life is warned herewith not to be captivated by the external features of fruitive actors. Human life is never meant for sense gratification, but for self-realization. Srimad Bhagavatam instructs us solely on this subject from the very beginning to the end. Human life is simply meant for self-realization. The civilization which aims at this utmost perfection never indulges in creating unwanted things and such a and such a perfect civilization prepares men only to accept the bare necessities of life or to follow the principle of the best use of a bad bargain. Best use of a bad bargain. Our material bodies and our lives in that connection are bad bargains because the living entity is actually spirit and spiritual advancement of the living entity is absolutely necessary. Human life is intended for the realization of this important factor and one should act accordingly, accepting only the bare necessities of life and depending more on God's gift without diversion of human energy for any other purpose, such as being mad for material enjoyment. The materialistic advancement of civilization is called the civilization of the demons, which ultimately ends in wars and scarcity. The transcendentalist is specially warned herewith to be fixed in mind so that even if there is difficulty in plain living and high thinking, he will not budge even an inch from his stark determination. For a transcendentalist, stark determination. For a transcendentalist, it is a suicidal policy to be intimately in touch with the sense gratifiers of the world because such a policy will frustrate the ultimate aim of life. Shukadev Goswami met Maharaj Prikshit when the latter felt a necessity for such a meeting. It is the duty of a transcendentalist to help persons who desire real salvation and to support the cause of salvation. One might note that Shukadev Goswami never met Maharaj Prikshit while he was ruling as a great king. For a transcendentalist, the mode of activities is explained in the next shloka. Four, when there, are apple, when there are ample earthly flats to lie on, what is the necessity of cots and beds? When one can use his own arms, what is the necessity of a pillow? When one can use the palms of his hands, what is the necessity of varieties of utensils? When there is ample covering where the skins of trees 
what is the necessity of clothing? Phantasmagoria. Did you look it up? Phantasmagoria. Where is it from? Guess. Latin, you're guessing Latin? Phantom. You got it? Um, so phantasmagoria is a noun, and the name is an alteration of French phantasmagorie, which is um, said to have been coined in um, 1801, um, and it means crowd of phantoms, and then from Greek phantasma, image, phantom, apparition, and then from Proto-Indo-European root pa, which means to shine. Pa, pa means what? To shine, B-H-A, to shine. P-H-A. B-H-A. Pa. Yeah. Shine. Okay. To shine. Um, and then there's a second element, which um, also is, appears to be French in, the for, in, in a form of Greek, which is agora, assembly. Uh, and then the transferred meaning is shifting scene of many elements. What? Um, the, the transferred meaning from Greek is shifting scene of many elements. How did we get to Greek? We went oh, from French to Greek. It's Greek. Yeah, it says um, the second element appears to be a French form of Greek agora assembly, but the inventor of the word um, prob only wanted a mouth-filling and startling term and may have fixed on agoria without any reference to the Greek lexicon. The transferred meaning, shifting scene of many elements. Shifting scene of? Many elements. Shifting scene of many elements. The material world is the shifting scene of many elephant, elements and elephants, otherwise known as phantasmagoria. Thank you very much from the research department. Okay. And if you were... On your way, it's okay. Don't don't worry. Just do what you need to do. Okay. Text number four. When there, when there are ample, okay. Purport. The necessities of life for the protection and comfort of the body must be, must not be unnecessarily increased. Human energy is spoiled in a vain search after such illusory happiness. If one is able to lie down on the floor, then why should one endeavor to get a good bedstead? or soft cushion to lie on. If one can rest without any pillow and make use of the soft arms endowed by nature, there is no necessity of searching after a pillow. If we make a study of the general life of the animals, we can see that they have no intelligence for building big houses, furniture, and other household paraphernalia, and yet they maintain a healthy life by lying down on the open land. They do not know how to cook or prepare foodstuffs. Yet they still live healthy lives more easily than the human being. This does not mean that human civilization should revert to animal life or that the human being should live naked in the jungles without any culture, education, and sense of morality. An intelligent human can live, cannot live the life of an animal. Rather, man should try to utilize his intelligence 
in arts and science, poetry and philosophy. In such a way, he can further the progressive march of human civilization. But here, the idea given by Srila Shukadeva Goswami is that the reserve energy of human life, which is far superior to that of animals, should simply be utilized for self-realization. Advancement of human civilization must be toward, towards the goal of establishing our lost relationship with God, which is not possible in any form of life other than the human. One must realize the nullity, good word, of the material phenomenon, the nullity of the material phenomenon, considering it a passing phantasmagoria and must endeavor to make a solution to the miseries of life. Self-complacence with a polished type of animal civilization geared to sense gratification is delusion and such a civilization is not worthy of the name. In pursuit of such false activities, a human being is in the clutches of Maya or illusion. Great sages and saints in the days of yore were not living in palatial buildings furnished with good furniture and so-called amenities of life. They used to live in huts and groves and sit on the flat ground, and yet they have left immense treasures of high knowledge with all perfection. Srila Rupa Goswami and Srila Sanatan Goswami were high-ranking ministers of state, but they were able to leave behind them immense writings on transcendental knowledge while residing only for one night underneath one tree. They did not live even two nights under the same tree and what to speak of well-furnished rooms with modern amenities. And still they were able to give us most important literatures of self-realization. So-called comforts of life are not actually helpful for progressive civilization. Rather, they are detrimental to such progressive life. In the system of Sanatan Dharma, or four divisions of social life and four orders of progressive realization, there are ample opportunities and sufficient directions for a happy termination of the progress of the, of the progressive life and the sincere followers are advised therein to accept a voluntary life of renunciation in order to achieve the desired goal of life. If one is not accustomed to abiding by the life of renunciation and self-abnegation from the beginning, one should try to get into the habit at a later stage of life as recommended by Srila Shukadeva Goswami, and it will help one to achieve the desired success. Are there no torn cloths lying on the are there no torn clothes lying on the common road? Do the trees which exist for maintaining others no longer give alms and charity? Do the rivers being dried up no longer supply water to the thirsty? Are the caves of the mountains now closed? Or, above all, does the Almighty Lord not protect the fully surrendered souls? Why then do the learned sages go to flatter those who are intoxicated by hard-earned wealth? Purport, the renounced order of life is never meant for begging or living at the cost of others as a parasite. According to the dictionary, a parasite is a sycophant who lives at the cost of society without making any contribution to that society. The renounced order is meant for contributing something substantial to society and not depending on the earnings of the householders. 
On the contrary, acceptance of alms from the householders by the bona fide mendicant is an opportunity afforded by the saint for the tangible benefit of the donor. In the Sanatan Dharma institution, almsgiving to the mendicant is part of a householder's duty, and it is advised in the scriptures that the householders should treat the mendicants as their family children and should provide them with food, clothing, etc., without being asked. asked. Pseudo-mendicants, therefore, should not take advantage of the charitable disposition of the faithful householders. The first duty of a person in the renounced order of life is to contribute some literary work for the benefit of the human being in order to give him realized direction towards self-realization. Amongst the other duties in the renounced order of life of Sanatan Goswami Srila Rupa and the other Goswamis of Vrindavan, the foremost duty discharged by them was to hold learned discourses among themselves at Sevakunj Vrindavan, the spot where Sri Radha Damodar Temple was established by Srila Jiva Goswami and where the actual Samadhi tombs of Srila Rupa Goswami and Srila Jiva Goswami are laid. For the benefit of all in human society, they left behind them immense literatures of transcendental importance. Similarly, all the Acharyas who voluntarily accepted the renounced order of life aimed at benefiting human society and not at living a comfortable or irresponsible life at the cost of others. However, those who cannot give any contribution should not go to the householders for food. For such mendicants, asking bread from the householders are an insult to the highest order. Shukadev Goswami gave this warning especially for those mendicants who adopt this line of profession to solve their economic problems. Such mendicants are in abundance in the age of Kali. When a man becomes a mendicant willfully or by circumstances, he must be of firm faith and conviction that the Supreme Lord is the maintainer of all living beings everywhere in the universe. Why then would he neglect the maintenance of a surrendered soul who is cent percent engaged in the service of the Lord. A common master looks to the necessities of his servant. So how much more would the all-powerful, all-opulent Supreme Lord look after the necessities of life for a fully surrendered soul? The general rule is that a mendicant devotee will accept a simple small loincloth without asking anyone to give it in charity. He simply salvages it from some, the rejected torn cloth thrown in the street. When he is hungry, he may go to a magnanimous tree which drops fruits. And when he is thirsty, he may drink water from the flowing river. He does not require to live in a comfortable house, but should find a cave in the hills and not be afraid of jungle animals, keeping faith in God who lives in everyone's heart. The Lord may dictate to tigers and other jungle animals not to disturb his devotee. Haridas Thakur, a great devotee of Lord Sri Chaitanya, used to live in such a cave, and by chance, a great venomous snake was a co-partner of the cave. Some admirer of Thakur Haridas, who had to visit the Thakur every day, feared the snake and suggested that the Thakur leave that place. Because his devotees were afraid of the snake, and they were regularly visiting the cave, Thakur Haridas agreed to the proposal on their account. But as soon as this was settled, the snake actually crawled out of its hole in the cave and left the cave for good before everyone present. 
by the dictation of the Lord who lived also within the heart of the snake. The snake gave preference to Haridas and decided to leave the place and not disturb him. So this is a tangible example of how the Lord gives protection to a bona fide devotee like Thakur Haridas. According to the regulations of the Sanatan Dharma Institution, one is trained from the beginning to depend fully on the protection of the Lord in all circumstances. The path of renunciation is recommended for acceptance by one who is fully accomplished and fully purified in his existence. This stage is described also in the Bhagavad Gita 16.5 as Daivi Sampat, everyone say. A human being is required to accumulate Daivi Sampat or spiritual assets. What are we supposed to accumulate? Spiritual assets, Daivi Sampat, correct. Otherwise, the next alternative, Asuri Sampat, bad, or material assets, will overcome him disproportionately and thus one will be forced into the entanglement of different miseries of the material world. A sannyasi should always live alone, without company, and he must be fearless. He should never be afraid of living alone, although he is never alone. The Lord is residing in everyone's heart, and unless one is purified by the prescribed process, one will feel that he is alone. But a man in the renounced order of life must be purified by the process. Thus he will feel the presence of the Lord everywhere and will have nothing to fear, such as being without any company. Everyone can become a fearless and honest person in his very existence is purified. Everyone can become a fearless and honest person if his very existence is purified by discharging the prescribed duty for each and every order of life. One can become fixed in one's prescribed duty by faithful oral reception of Vedic instructions and assimilation of the essence of Vedic knowledge by devotional service to the Lord. Everyone okay? Six. Thus being fixed, one must render service unto the Supersoul situated in one's own heart by his omnipotency. Because he is the almighty personality of Godhead, eternal and unlimited, he is the ultimate goal of life. And by worshiping him, one can end the cause of the conditioned state of existence. Just chicken in the Zoom room real quick. We need to see the devotees if there are any there. Haribo! Good devotees. Purport. As confirmed in Bhagavad Gita 1861, the Supreme Personality of God Sri Krishna is the all-pervading, omnipresent Supersoul. Therefore, one who is a yogi can worship only him because he is the substance and not illusion. Every living creature is engaging in the service of something else. A living being's constitutional position is to render service, but in the atmosphere of maya, or illusion, or the conditional state of existence, the conditioned soul seeks the service of illusion. A conditioned soul works in the service of his temporary body, bodily relatives like the wife and children, and the necessary paraphernalia for maintaining the body and bodily relations, such as the house, land, 
wealth, society, and country, but he does not know that all such renderings of service are totally illusory. As we have discussed many times before, this material world is itself an illusion, like a mirage in the desert. In the desert, there is an illusion of water, and the foolish animals become entrapped by such illusion and run after water in the desert, although there is no water at all. But because there is no water in the desert, one does not conclude that there is no water at all. The intelligent person knows well that there is certainly water, water in the seas and oceans, but such vast reservoirs of water are far, far away from the desert. One should therefore search for water in the vicinity of seas and oceans and not in the desert. Every one of us is searching after real happiness in life, namely eternal life, eternal or unlimited knowledge and unending blissful life. But foolish people who have no knowledge of the substance search of the substance search after the reality of life in the illusion. This material body does not endure eternally, and everything in relation with this temporary body, such as the wife, children, society, and country, also changes along with the change of body. This is called samsara, a repetition, repetition of birth, death, old age, and disease. We would like to find a solution for all these problems of life, but we do not know the way. Herein it is suggested that anyone who wants to make an end to these miseries of life, namely repetition of birth, death, disease, and old age, must take to this process of worshiping the Supreme Lord and not others, as it is also ultimately suggested in the Bhagavad Gita 1865. If we at all want to end the cause of our conditioned life, we must take to the worship of Lord Sri Krishna, who is present in everyone's heart by his natural affection for all living beings, who are actually the parts and parcels of the Lord. The baby in the lap of his mother is naturally attached to the mother, and the mother is attached to the child. But when the child grows up and becomes overwhelmed by circumstances, he gradually becomes detached from the mother. The baby in the lap of his mother is naturally attached to his mother, and the mother is attached to the child. But when the child grows up and becomes overwhelmed by circumstances, he gradually becomes detached from the mother. Although the mother always expects some sort of service from the grown-up child and is equally affectionate toward her, her child, even though the child is forgetful. Similarly, because we are all part and parcel of the Lord, the Lord is always affectionate to us, and he always tries to get us back home, back to Godhead. But we, the conditioned souls, do not care for him and run instead after the illusory connections of the world and seek reunion with the Lord. We, therefore, we must therefore extricate ourselves from all illusory connections of the world and seek reunion with the Lord, trying to render service unto him because he is the ultimate truth. Actually, we are hankering after him as the child seeks the mother. And to search out the Supreme Personality of Godhead, we need not go anywhere else because the Lord is within our hearts. This does not suggest, however, that we should not go to the places of worship, namely the temples, churches, and mosques. Such holy places of worship are also occupied by the Lord because the Lord is omnip omnipresent. From the common man, for the common man, these holy places 
are centers of learning about the science of God. When the temples are devoid of activities, the people in general become uninterested in such places, and consequently the mass of people gradually become godless, and a godless civilization is the result. Such a hellish civilization artificially increases the conditions of life, and existence becomes intolerable for everyone. The foolish leaders of a godless civilization try to devise various plans to bring about peace and prosperity in the godless world under a patent trademark of materialism. Patent trademark of materialism. And because such attempts are illusory only, the people elect incompetent blind leaders one after another who are incapable of offering solutions. If we want at all to end this anomaly of a godless civilization, we must follow the principles of revealed scriptures like Srimad Bhagavatam and follow the instruction of a person like Shukadev Goswami, who has no attraction for material gain. Text number seven, and just after this, we'll take a couple of reflections. Who else but the gross materialist will neglect such transcendental thought and take to the non-permanent names only, seeing the mass of people fallen in the river of suffering as a consequence of accruing, accruing, the result of their own work. Purport. In the Vedas it is said that persons who are attached to demigods to the exclusion of the Supreme Personality of Godhead are like animals who follow the herdsmen even though they are taken to the slaughterhouse. The materialists, like animals, also do not know that they are being misdirected by neglecting the transcendental thought of the Supreme Person. No one can remain vacant of thought it is said that an idle brain is a devil's workshop because a person who cannot think in the right way must think of something which may bring him, which may bring about disaster. The materialists are always worshiping some minor demigods, although this is condemned in the Bhagavad Gita 720. As long as a person is illusioned by material gains, he petitions the respective demigods to draw some particular benefit, which is, after all, illusory and non-permanent. The enlightened transcendentalist is not captivated by such illusory things. Therefore, he is always absorbed in the transcendental thought of the Supreme in different stages of realization, namely Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. In the previous verse, it is suggested that one should think of the Supersoul, which is one step higher than the impersonal thought of Brahman. As it was suggested in the case of, the, of contemplating the Virat Rupa of the Personality of Godhead. Intelligent persons who can properly, who, intelligent persons who can see properly may look into the general conditions of the living entities who are wandering in the cycle of 8,400,000 species of life, as well as in different classes of human beings. It is said there, it is said that there is an everlasting belt of water called the river Vaitarani at the entrance of the Plutonic planet of Yamaraj, who punishes sinners in different manners. After being subjected to such sufferings, a sinner is awarded a particular species of life according to his deeds in the past. Such living entities are punished by Yamaraj. Such living entities as are punished by Yamaraj, are seen in different varieties of conditioned life. Some of them are in heaven and some of them are in hell.
Some of them are brahmanas and some of them are misers. But no one is happy in this mature world and all of them are either class A, B or C prisoners suffering because of their own deeds. The Lord is impartial to all circumstances of all the sufferings of the living entities. But to one who takes shelter at his lotus feet, the Lord gives proper protection. And he takes such a living entity back home, back to himself. Haribo. Let's take a few reflections or questions. So we can just have a change of pace for one moment and, and have some illumination on the subject matter. Yes. One, two. Hare Krishna, Guru Maharaj. Hare Krishna. I had the question that uh, there's, in one of the verses it said that Sukhdev Goswami indirectly tells Parikshit Maharaj about not going to the heavenly planets. So my question is that uh, Parikshit Maharaj was already known to be uh, one of the great devotees of the Lord. So why would he need to be told to not think about going to the heavenly planets? He, he doesn't need to be told, but it's the custom of these great souls when they're inquiring that they uh, induce the, the exalted speaker to start at the beginning. And you'll find this with Vidura and, and um, Uddhava also, that uh, Vidura asks really simple questions, uh, and Maitreya, Vidura and Maitreya, he, he starts off by asking like underhand pitch questions that, that uh, are for the elucidation of the people in general. And that's just the, the merciful way in which these great souls operate. So if he didn't ask him, you know, a simpler question, uh, if he, even if he didn't ask a simple question, Shukadeva Goswami interprets that that's his intention, and therefore he's, for didactic purposes, is starting at that level. That's actually actually mentioned in one of Prabhupada's lectures, or I should say, Prabhupada mentions that in one of his lectures. Yes. Thank you, Shri Gurudev. Um, I like the two two four purport where um, Sukhdev Goswami was saying uh, that you know what is the need of everything, and the purport uh, um, Shri Prabhupada is also saying. Um, so I was for uh, I, I I was forwarded a video of a TED talk, and in that uh, it was saying that um, you know humans take thirty years to build a home, but a raid takes uh, just one night. Who who takes uh, one night? Mice. Oh, mice. Uh, yeah. You build a home in one night. One night, yeah. <laughs> so what kind of civilization is there? <laughs> so we, he says, we clever humans like that. So, yeah, um, I really like that purport. And in 226 uh, purport, it was said, sannyasi should live alone. Um, so the story of uh, ja um, Bharat Maharaj, right, he was alone. So uh, I heard once that it was because he had not devotee association, that's why he, he fell down. So, um, but here it is said he should live alone. So, um, how can I, how can we reconcile? Well, it, with Bharat Maharaj, it had to do with him uh, living alone and also not having a, uh, a guide who uh, he's under. So even if you live alone, if you're under the shelter of a guide somewhere, then you have a kind of protection because you're saying, well, what did my guide say about this? And that's more the point with Bharat Maharaj. It's also the point in the Brihat Bhagavatamrita that 
Gopal Kumar received the mantra, but because he didn't have any guidance, he had to go all over the round, around the universe before he came back to uh, the perfection of life. He met Narada, who said, that way, start here, go there, you're okay, do Sankirtan. <laughs> this is nectarian, isn't it? It kind of solves all the problems and it makes you feel happy. Because like, yeah, it's not me, it's the material <laughs> that's messed up. Yes. Oh, there's hands up? Oh, okay, Subhadra. And then we'll go to Sri Antariksha Prabhu. Go ahead. I, I just find myself um, being pulled between being amazed at what Srila Prabhupada is saying and then being amazed at the way he's saying it. And um, it's hard for me to pull myself away from analyzing. Like sometimes when he talks about, when he makes a point, I imagine that he's had so many conversations in his life that someone at some point said that to him. And so he brings it up in the purport. And I always find that really, I always just wonder where and who he talked to. And then also like he used the word plutonic and I just was wondering about what made him think of that because did he know astrology at all? Pluto's not even usually used in Eastern astrology, Vedic astrology. Anyway, I just get pulled into, but then I'm trying to pay attention to what he's saying because that's amazing too, so obviously. Yeah, I, I share the same fascination. In fact, I wrote in a Vyasa Puja that I wrote for Srila Prabhupada some years ago a prayer that I could have a retrospective, go back and watch where he picked up these things. <laughs> I wanted to be in the same room when he, when, when, when did he learn that verse? When did that, that come into his mind? And, you know, and where did he get this example and that example? And while we're at it, uh, and Sri Antariksha Prabhu is bringing up his point, look up the word plutonic, because we can give a history of, why Prabhupada was using, or have a, a guess at why he was using it in that context. Please go ahead. Hare Krishna Maharaj. Uh, uh, I was uh, trying, uh, I was looking at the third text and uh, the purport towards the end of the purport. So Prabhupada writes, it is the duty of a transcendentalist to help persons who desire real salvation and to support the cause of salvation. And then he says, one might note that Sukadev Goswami never met Par Maharaj Parikshit while he was ruling as a great king. So I was just trying to understand the point. Uh, so Parikshit Maharaj was a great devotee. So is it that when he needed it, so that's when uh, Sukadev Goswami appeared? Yeah, it's, you know, we have this 10 offense ten, or ninth, ninth offense. Don't preach the, the glories of the holy name of the faithless and especially renunciates also. They're very careful about whom they associate with. We find that with Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Prataparuja. And so there's a, um, there's a way in which um, the devotee, oh yes, I was gonna uh, mention Prabhupada. When um, the prime minister of India, there was some arrangement uh, through networking, the prime minister was to meet Prabhupada, and then he said, well, Prabhupada can come to my place, and Prabhupada said, no, no, he should come to my place. <laughs> he was not. So there's a kind of etiquette, and why, why is the etiquette there? It's because mercy flows down 
And there's a way in which if you have the right mentality, and that is like, I'm going to see a holy person. Like even the topmost political leader should come to visit a holy person, bring a garland and some gift and, you know, bow down, touch the feet of the holy person and, and then can receive knowledge. That's the tradition. Tadvidi pradipatena pradipashnena sevaya. And so in presenting Krishna consciousness, an elevated person is also aware of the dynamic and is careful not to uh, transgress that. Be and, it's, and it's not because, oh yeah, you should treat me in a better way. It's because of uh, what it does for the person to be able to approach. And if the person's not on that level yet, it's useless to go see him. And Prabhupada made that point uh, about the prime minister. If, if he doesn't know enough to come see the saintly person rather than make the saintly person come to him, then you know, he's not ready. Uh, to, he to hear. So, uh, also it was mentioned that the, you know, Shukadev Goswami asked the question, why does the self-realized person go to flatter those who are wealthy? He said, well, he doesn't need their money. In fact, that's our line, right? We don't sell it like in a bookstore. We just take a donation. We don't need the money. The only reason we ask is when you give something in return for spiritual knowledge, <laughs> it connects you to the previous teachers. And it allows you to be able to enter into the knowledge very deeply. That's the fact. And so that's, that's the dynamic that those who are reaching out to others are always aware of. What creates the most favorable circumstance for the per person that you're presenting to is so that they can receive the knowledge. Did that answer your question? Okay. There are uh, yes. more devotees on the Zoom. Oh, well, that's nice. Hands. Look, we have Devavrata. Subhadra, are you are you still have your hand up also? No, I'm sorry, I'll lower it. Okay, no problem. <laughs> Devavrata. Hi, Krishna Gurmash. I just uh I was able to tune in yesterday and I just had this visceral visceral experience appreciating the fact He appreciated. And it was visceral, which is nice. It's a really sweet thing. And uh, did we look up the word plutonium? Oh, yes, please go ahead. You, we lost you for about six and a half seconds. Go right ahead. Should, should I start from the beginning? Yeah, we liked it so much. The visceral. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I, I had this visceral experience uh, yesterday during uh, our Tuesday reading. And I was just thinking how fortunate we are to be sitting together on a Tuesday morning discussing what we're supposed to be doing at the time of death. And I was having that thought because I've been reading Harisari's Transcendental Diary and something came up about um, Howard, Howard Hughes, the, the entrepreneur of, of the 20th century. And when he died, he died in a plane by himself. And a, the last thing that he said is something's terribly wrong. I think I've made a mistake. And the devotees were relating this to Prabhupada and Prabhupada said, yes, he did make a mistake and that kind of sparked like a research fuse on my end looking at what have people said throughout time at the time Howard of death. Bojiria who came from uh, the Medici family of Italy and he said I have taken care of everything in life only not for death and now I have to die completely unprepared. So I was just appreciating yesterday how we're all just getting together, preparing to die. 
<laughs> yeah, we're like sitting on the bank of the Ganga here and hearing Srimad Bhagavatam. And it is extremely fulfilling. And every devotee I know here at ISV or anywhere else that, as an example, sits through the recitation of the entire Bhagavad Gita, never says the next day, oh, what a waste of time. I wish I had watched television instead. Or that was too long. On the contrary, they say, can we do that every day? Because <laughs> when you get enough spiritual infusion, then there's a, an awakening in the heart. It's like, why don't I do this all the time? Followed by, why have I been wasting all my time? And uh, when that eagerness is there to hear all the time, constantly, without stoppage, then one's starting to get some traction in spiritual life. And we have to practice that throughout our lifetime, hearing as much as possible to develop that sense of being like Prikshit Maharaj, leaning in, where he says, usually I'd be hungry because I'm not eating. Usually I'd be thirsty because I'm not drinking. Usually I need some sleep because I'm not sleeping. But right now, I don't even think about those things because I'm drinking nectar. And that's advancement in Krishna consciousness. That's an advanced state, and that's how one advances in Krishna consciousness. What else? Any other thing? Okay. Plutonic, yes. Give us the history of the word, please. Uh, plutonic is an adjective. It's pertaining to or involving intense heat deep in the Earth's crust, 1790. Intense heat? Yeah. Uh, in the Earth's crust. Um, coined by Irish scientist Richard Kerwin, 1733 to 1812, from combining form of Pluto as god of the underworld, um, especially in reference to early 19th century geological theory uh, championed by Hutton that attributed most of the present features of the Earth's crust to action of internal uh, heat, a theory which triumphed over its rival Neptunism, which attributed them to water. And should I read further? <laughs> well, how much more you got? Um, there's this, there's a related definition of Pluto, which says that uh, the Roman god of the underworld in the early 14th century, from Latin Pluto, Pluton, from Greek Plauton, god of wealth, um, from Plautos, which means wealth or riches, hmm. probably originally overflowing. And the, and the exact definition of it? The exact definition given is um, of Plutonic is relating to or denoting igneous rock formed by solidification at considerable depth beneath the Earth's surface. Um, the second is relating to the underworld or the god Pluto. Thank you. I don't know if that helps at all, Subhadra, to hear that. Well, I know that in... Western astrology, <clears throat> Pluto's not a good planet. It's a bad planet. So I was thinking that Prabhupada was just referring to the Earth as going south. You know, I mean, not doing well. It's, it's usually in, used in pejorative context. Yeah. And it can be just generically, generically pejorative. And maybe, you know, not necessarily directed specifically towards the 
the uh, heavenly bodies, but, you know, like, instead of saying hell, say the Plutonic yeah. regions. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Go to Pluto. Hare Krishna. Say what? Yes, please go ahead. Yes, please oh. accept my humble obeisance. Uh, this is Nanori Dasi. I like the point uh, that they, it says in the Bhagavatam that never uh, become comfortable and secure in this material world. We should um, live mini with minimum things, otherwise, uh, and we don't want to waste a second. Otherwise, it's all waste of time. So I like that point. Thank you. Yeah, back for my friend Bopadev. I went to say, stay with him once in Alachua, and uh, I stayed in his apartment. He didn't have any furniture. And then for cooking, he had um, a pot, but he only had one spoon in the whole apartment. <laughs> of course, that's not recommended necessarily, but I just saw he grew up, you know, most of his youth as a brahmachari. So I just saw, it's like, wasn't, didn't have a lot of uh, attraction to furniture and a lot of extra things. Okay, uh, we have Gandharvika. Randavat Pranams Prabhu, uh, devotees were reading um, Bhagavatam in Jai Radhe's home. So, and then I was pondering why things like uh, so much happen in our life. We don't know the reason. But right at that time, I opened um, Brahat Bhagavatam Rita. And I came across this verse, which was really startling. And also to the point that uh, Devavrata Prabhu said, how we all do mistakes. Uh, I just read the verse, Prabhu. In the Padma Purana, this is verse 204 on page 407. In the Padma Purana, Lord Shiva has summed up the essence of all Vedic beauties in these famous words. And then uh, he quotes the verse. And then the meaning is, Lord Vishnu should always be remembered and never forgotten. All injunctions and prohibitions are servants of these two rules. And then in the purport, when one remembers Lord Vishnu, one has fulfilled all Vedic injunctions. And because remembering him awakens all auspiciousness. And when one forgets him, one has violated all prohibitions because all sins are born from that forgetfulness. Thus, rather than striving for anything else, everyone should endeavor to follow these two rules. So I was just thinking that even while chanting, we don't remember, we forget. So we have no right to think that we have always done the right thing. As Prabhupada said, we are always wrong because we don't remember Krishna all the time and all the sins originate from that. So that was very, um, it made an impression. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a quite helpful section. And all sins are born from that forgetfulness is a very helpful concept. La uh, last one, and then we'll take a three-minute yeah. break. So I had a question on forgetfulness only. Today when you read, I think the first verse said that uh, Brahmaji, even he had that forgetfulness, and to counteract, he um, meditated on the Virat Rupa. So I was wondering why, and he, I think Prabhupada says one should meditate on the Virat Rupa. So I was a little confused because we should remember Krishna for anything. So why here, here in the second canto, the very beginning, Shukri Goswami is starting at the elementary level for beginners. So first idea is pantheism, 
which is that, you know, see in nature and then connect it, like the logos. Logos means, oh, there's some um, organization here. In the Bible it says, in the, in the beginning was the logos, was the word, and the word designs everything. So that's why we have ologies. Ology comes from logo, like biology, sociology, that made it into the sciences. And all these various um, ologies, because they can be ordered. There's an order in the universe. And we start off by seeing the, the hand of some supreme intelligence that's organizing everything. We don't know who it is. And then comes this more refined idea that you actually see the form within nature. You say, yes, the virat rupa, the form is there. The trees, the hairs on the body, streams of the veins. The artistic sense is the, the birds, the various birds. The toenails are the, you know, these coarser animals, like the donkey, and so forth. And then, you know, from seeing that, one becomes more elevated. And then he starts talking about uh, Dhyan Yoga or Dharana on the Suprasoul and meditating on the localized feature. But then the next stage above that will be meditating on Kishore, the 15-year-old Supreme Personality of Godhead who is the source of everything. So it just goes in stages, that's all. And it's only a way in which he's re referring in context to the ways of remembering Krishna because that's what's being discussed in the beginning here. Okay, so now we have a three-minute break, and uh, we'll be back here. And we thank all the devotees who've joined us on the internet and on Zoom. And hopefully you could take a three-minute break and come right back too. Is that okay?
Welcome back. We're continuing our reading of the Srimad Bhagavatam. And we're on the second canto, second chapter, The Lord in the Heart. We'll take up at text number eight, which begins with the word kechit, others, swadeha anta, within the body, hridaya avakashe, avakashe, in the region of the heart, pradesha matram, Measuring only eight inches. Purusham, the supreme, the personality of Godhead. Vasantam, residing. Chatubhujam, with four hands. Kanja, lotus. Rataanga, the wheel of a chariot. Shanka, conch shell. Gadadharam, and with club in hand. Dharanaya, conceiving in that way. Smaranti, do meditate upon him. Translation, others conceive of the personality of Godhead residing within the body in the region of the heart and measuring only eight inches with four hands carrying a lotus, a wheel of a chariot, a conch shell, and a club, respectively. The all-pervading personality of Godhead resides as paramatma in the heart of each and every living entity. The measurement of the localized personality of Godhead is estimated to expand from the ring finger to the end of the thumb, more or less eight inches. The form of the Lord, described in this verse with distribution of different symbols beginning from the lower right hand up and down to the lower left hand with lotuses, wheel of a chariot, conch shell and club respectively, is called Janardhan, or the plenary portion of the Lord who controls the general mass. There are many other forms of the Lord with varied situations of the symbols of lotus, conch shell, etc. And they are differently known as Purushottam, Achuta, Narasimha, Trivikrama, Hrishikesh, Keshava, Madhava, Aniruddha, Pradyumna, Sankarsana, Sridhara, Vasudeva, Damodara, Janardana, Narayana, Hari, Padmanabha, Vaman, Madhusudana, Govinda, Krishna, Vishnu Murti, Adhoksaja, and Upendra. These 24 forms of the localized personality of Godhead are worshipped in different parts of the planetary system. And in each system, there is an incarnation of the Lord having a different Vaikuntha planet in the spiritual sky, which is called the Paravyom. There are many other hundreds and scores of different forms of the Lord 
And each and every one of them has a particular planet in the spiritual sky, of which this material sky is only a fragmental offshoot. The Lord exists as Purusha, or the male enjoyer, although there is no comparing him to any male form in the material world. But all such forms are Advaita, non-different from one another. And each of them is eternally young. The Lord with four hands is nicely decorated, as described below. His mouth expresses his happiness. His eyes spread like the petals of a lotus. And his garments, yellowish like the saffron of a kadamba flower, are bedecked with valuable jewels. His ornaments are all made of gold, set with jewels. And he wears a glowing headdress and earrings. His lotus feet are placed over the whorls of the lotus-like hearts of great mystics. On his chest is the Kaushtuba jewel, engraved with a beautiful calf. And there are other jewels on his shoulders. His complete torso is garlanded with fresh flowers. The ornaments, flowers, clothing, and all other decorations on the transcendental body of the Personality of Godhead are identical with the body of the Lord. None of them are made of material ingredients. Otherwise, there would be no chance of their decorating the body of the Lord. As such, in the Paravyoma, spiritual varieties are also distinguished from the material variegatedness. He is well decorated with an ornamental wreath about his waist and rings studded with valuable jewels on his fingers. His leglets, his bangles, his oiled hair curling with a bluish tint and his beautiful smiling face are all very pleasing. The Supreme Personality of God is the most beautiful person amongst all others. And Srila Shukadeva Goswami describes every part of his transcendental beauty one after another in order to teach the impersonalist that the Personality of Godhead is not an imagination by the devotee for facility of worship, but is the Supreme Person in fact and figure. The impersonal feature of the Absolute Truth is but his radiation, as the sun rays are but radiations from the sun. It says, the beginning of the purport, the Supreme Personality of God, it is the most beautiful person amongst all others. Twelve, the Lord's magnanimous pastimes and the glowing glancing of his smiling face are all indications of his extensive benedictions. One must therefore concentrate on this transcendental form of the Lord as long as the mind can be fixed on him by meditation. In Bhagavad Gita 12.5, it is said that the impersonalist undergoes a series of difficult programs on account of his impersonal meditation. But the devotee, due to the Lord's personal service, progresses very easily. Impersonal meditation is therefore a source of suffering for the impersonalists. Here, the devotee has an advantage over the impersonalist philosopher. The impersonalist is doubtful about the personal feature of the Lord and therefore he always tries to meditate upon something which is not objective. For this reason, there is an uh, authentic statement in the Bhagavatam regarding the positive concentration of the mind on the factual form of the Lord. The process of meditation recommended herein is bhakti yoga, 
or the process of devotional service after one is liberated from the material conditions. Jnana Yoga is the process of liberation from the material conditions. After one is liberated from the conditions of material existence, that is, when one is nivritta, as previously stated herein, or when, when, or when one is freed from all material necessities, one becomes qualified to discharge the process of bhakti-yoga, freed from all material necessities. Therefore, bhakti-yoga includes jnana-yoga, or in other words, the process of pure devotional service simultaneously serves the purpose of jnana-yoga. Liberation from material conditions is automatically achieved by the gradual development of pure devotional service. These effects of bhakti-yoga are called anartha-nivritti. These effects of bhakti-yoga are called anartha-nivritti. Things which are artificially acquired gradually disappear along with the progress of bhakti-yoga. Meditation on the lotus feet of the Personality of Godhead, the first processional step, must show its effect by anartha-nivritti. The grossest type of anartha which binds the conditioned soul in the material existence is sex desire, and this sex desire gradually develops in the union of the male and female. When the male and female are united, the sex desire is further aggravated by the accumulation of buildings, children, friends, relatives, and wealth. When all these are acquired, the conditioned soul becomes overwhelmed by such entanglements and the false sense of egoism, or the sense of myself and mine, becomes prominent, and the sex desire expands to various political, social, altruistic, philanthropic, and many other unwanted engagements, resembling the foam of the sea waves, which becomes very prominent at one time and at the next moment vanishes as quickly as a cloud in the sky. The conditioned soul is enriched by such products as well as products of sex desires, and therefore bhakti yoga leads to gradual evaporation of the sex desire, which is summarized in three headings, namely profit, adoration, and distinction. All conditioned souls are mad after these different forms of sex desire, and one shall see for himself how much he has been freed from such material hankerings based primarily on the sex desire. As a person feels his hunger satisfied after eating each morsel of foodstuff, he must similarly be able to see the degree to which he has been freed from sex desire. The sex desire is diminished along with its various forms by the process of bhakti yoga because bhakti yoga automatically, by the grace of the Lord, effectively results in knowledge and renunciation, even if the devotee is not materially very well educated. Knowledge means knowing things as they are. And if by deliberation it is found that there are things which are at all unnecessary, naturally the person who has acquired knowledge leaves aside such unwanted things. When the conditioned soul finds by culture of knowledge that material necessities are unwanted things, he becomes detached from such unwanted things. This stage of knowledge is called vairagya, or detachment from unwanted things. We have previously discussed that the transcendentalist is required to be self-sufficient and should not beg from the rich blind persons to fulfill the bare necessities of life. 
Shukadev Goswami has suggested some alternatives for the bare necessities of life, namely the problem of eating, sleeping, and shelter. And he has not suggested any alternative for sex satisfaction. But he has not suggested any alternative for sex satisfaction. One who has the sex desire still with him should not at all try to accept the renounced order of life. For one who has not attained to the stage, there is no question of a renounced order of life. So by the gradual process of devotional service under the guidance of a proper spiritual master and following the principles of the Bhagavatam, one must be able to at least one must be able at least to control the gross sex desire before one accepts the renounced order of life factually. So purification means getting free gradually from sex desire. And this is sustained by meditation on the person of the Lord as described herein, beginning from the feet. One should not try to go upwards artificially without seeing for himself how much he has been released from sex desire. The smiling face of the Lord in the 10th canto of Srimad Bhagavatam the smiling face of the Lord is the 10th canto of Srimad Bhagavatam, and there are many upstarts who at once try to begin with the 10th canto and especially with the five chapters which delineate the rasa lila of the Lord. This is certainly improper. By such improper study or hearing of Bhagavatam, the material opportunists have played havoc by indulgence in sex life in the name of Bhagavatam. This vilification of Bhagavatam is rendered by the acts of the so-called devotees. One should be free from all kinds of sex desire before he tries to make a show of recital of Bhagavatam. Sri Vishnath Chakravarti Thakur clearly defines the import of purification as cessation from sex indulgence. He says, Yata yata dish cha shuddhiti vishaya lampatyam tyajati Tata tata dariyaditi chittashudhi taratam yenaiva dhyana taratam yam uptam. And as one gets free from the intoxication of sex indulgence by purification of intelligence, one should step forward for the next meditation, or in other words, the progress of meditation on the different limbs of the transcendental body of the Lord should be enhanced in proportion to the progress of purification of the heart. The conclusion is that those who are still entrapped by sex indulgence should never progress to meditation above the feet of the Lord. Therefore, recital of Srimad Bhagavatam by them should be restricted to the first and second cantos of the great literature. One must complete the purificatory process by assimilating the contents of the first nine cantos then one should be admitted into the realm of the 10th canto of Srimad Bhagavatam. Haribo! The process of meditation should begin from the lotus feet of the Lord and progress to his smiling face. The meditation should be concentrated upon the lotus feet, then the calves, then the thighs, and in this way, higher and higher. The more the mind becomes fixed upon the different parts of the limbs, one after another, the more the intelligence becomes purified. Purport, the process of meditation recommended in, Srimad, in the Srimad Bhagavatam is not to fix one's attention on something impersonal or void. 
The meditation should concentrate on the person of the Supreme Godhead, either in his Virat Rupa, the gigantic universal form, or in his Sakchit Ananda Vigraha, as described in the scriptures. There are authorized scriptures, there are authorized descriptions of Vishnu forms, and there are authorized representations of deities in the temples. Thus one can practice meditating upon the deity, concentrating his mind on the lotus feet of the Lord and gradually rising higher and higher up to his smiling face. According to the Bhagavat school, the Lord's rasa dancing is the smiling of the face of the Lord. Since it is recommended in this verse that one should gradually progress from the lotus feet to the smiling face, we shall not jump at once to understand the Lord's pastimes in the rasa dance. It is better to practice concentrating our attention by offering flowers and tulsi to the lotus feet of the Lord. In this way, we gradually become purified by the archana process. We dress the Lord, bathe him, etc., and all these transcendental activities help us to purify our existence. When we reach the higher standard of purification, if we see the smiling face of the Lord or hear the rasa dance pastimes of the Lord, then we can relish his activities. In the Srimad Bhagavatam, therefore, the rasa dance pastimes are delineated in the 10th canto, chapters 29 through 34. Which chapters? The more one concentrates on the transcendental form of the Lord, either on the lotus feet, the calves, the thighs, or the chest, the more one becomes purified. In this verse, it is clearly stated, the more the intelligence becomes purified, which means the more one becomes detached from sense gratification. Our intelligence in the present conditioned state of life is impure due to being engaged in sense gratification. The result of meditation on the transcendental form of the Lord will be manifested by one's detachment from sense gratification. Therefore, the ultimate purpose of meditation is purification of one's intelligence. Those who are too engrossed in sense gratification cannot be allowed to participate in archana or to touch the transcendental form of the Radha Krishna or Vishnu deities. For them it is better to meditate upon the gigantic Virata Rupa of the Lord, as recommended in the next verse. The impersonalists and the voidists are therefore recommended to meditate upon the universal form of the Lord, whereas the devotees are recommended to meditate on the deity worship in the temple. Because the impersonalists and the voidists are not sufficiently purified in their spiritual activities, archana is not meant for them. Unless the gross materialist develops a sense of loving service unto the Supreme Lord, the seer of both the transcendental and material worlds, he should remember or meditate upon the universal form of the Lord at the end of his prescribed duties. Purport. The Supreme Lord is the seer of all worlds, both material and transcendental. In other words, the Supreme Lord is the ultimate beneficiary and enjoyer of all worlds, as confirmed in the Bhagavad Gita 529. The spiritual world is the manifestation of his internal potency, and the material world is the manifestation of his external potency. The living entities are also his marginal potency, and by their own choice, they can live in either the transcendental 
or material worlds. Did you catch that? Their own choice. The material world is not a fit place for living entities because they are spiritually one with the Lord and in the material world the living entities become conditioned by the laws of the material world. Okay, that's it, right? We're not staying. The Lord wants all living entities who are his parts and parcels to live with him in the transcendental world and for enlightening conditioned souls in the material world all the Vedas and the revealed scriptures are there expressly to recall the conditioned souls back home, back to Godhead. Unfortunately, the conditioned living entities, although suffering continually in the threefold miseries of conditioned life, are not very serious about going back to Godhead. It is due to their misguided way of living, complicated by sins and virtues. Some of them who are virtuous by deeds begin to reestablish the lost relation with the Lord, but they are unable to understand the personal feature of the Lord. The real purpose of life is to make contact with the Lord and be engaged in his service. That is the natural position of living entities. But those who are impersonalists and are unable to render any loving service to the Lord have been advised to meditate upon his impersonal feature, the virat rupa, or universal form. Some way or other, one must try to reestablish one's forgotten relation with the Lord if one at all desires to gain real happiness in life and to reclaim his natural unfettered condition. I underlined that when I read it last time, so I'll read it again if you don't mind. Some way or other, one must try to reestablish one's forgotten relation with the Lord if one at all desires to gain real happiness in life and to reclaim his natural unfettered condition. For the less intelligent beginners, meditation on the impersonal feature, the virat rupa, or universal form of the Lord, will gradually qualify, gradually qualify one to rise to personal contact. One is advised herewith to meditate upon the virat rupa specified in the previous chapters in order to understand how the different planets, seas, mountains, rivers, birds, beasts, human beings, demigods, and all that we can conceive are but different parts of the limbs of the Lord's virat form. This sort of thinking is also a type of meditation on the absolute truth, and as soon as such meditation begins, one develops one's godly qualities, and the whole world appears to be a happy and peaceful residence for all the people of the world. Without such meditation on God, either personal or impersonal, all good qualities of the human being become covered with misconceptions regarding his constitutional position. And without such advanced knowledge, the whole world becomes a hell for the human being. Haribo. O king, whenever the yogi desires to leave this planet of human beings, he should not be perplexed about the proper time or place, but should comfortably sit without being disturbed and regulating the life air should control the senses by the mind. Purport. In the Bhagavad Gita 8.14, it is clearly stated that a person who is totally engaged in the transcendental loving service of the Lord and who constantly remembers him at every step, easily obtains the mercy of the Lord by entering 
into his personal contact. Such devotees do not need to seek an opportune moment to leave the present body, but those who are mixed devotees, unalloyed with fruit of actions, or empirical philosophical speculation require an opportune moment for quitting this body. For them, the opportune moments are stated in the Bhagavad Gita, 18, excuse me, 8.23 through 26. But those opportune moments are not as important as one's being a successful yogi who is able to quit his body as he likes. Such a yogi must be competent to control his senses by the mind. The mind is easily conquered simply by engaging it in simply by engaging it at the lotus feet of the Lord. Gradually by such service, all the senses become automatically engaged in the service of the Lord. That is the way of merging into the Supreme Absolute. Everyone okay? Thereafter, the yogi should merge his mind by his unalloyed intelligence into the living entity, and then merge the living entity into the super-self. And by doing this, the fully satisfied living entity becomes situated in the supreme stage of satisfaction so that he ceases from all other activities. Purport. The functions of the mind are thinking, feeling, and willing. When the mind is materialistic or absorbed in material contact, it acts for material advancement of knowledge, destructively ending in discovery of nuclear weapons. But when the mind acts under spiritual urge, it acts wonderfully for going back home, back to Godhead, for life in complete bliss and eternity. Therefore, the mind has to be manipulated by good and unalloyed intelligence. Perfect intelligence is to render service unto the Lord. One should be intelligent enough to understand that the living entity is, in all circumstances, a servant of the circumstances. One should be intelligent enough to understand that the living entity, that the living being is, in all circumstances, a servant of the circumstances. Every living being is serving the dictates of desire, anger, lust, Illusion, insanity, and enviousness. All, ma all materially aff uh, affected. I'll read the last sentence again because it's so sweet to hear. Every living being is serving the dictates of desire, anger, lust, illusion, insanity, and enviousness. All materially affected. But even while executing such dictations of different temperaments, he is perpetually unhappy. When one actually feels this and turns his intelligence to inquiring about it from the right sources, he gets information of the transcendental loving service of the Lord. Instead of serving materially for the above-mentioned different humors of the body, the living entity's intelligence then becomes freed from the unhappy illusion of materialistic temperament and thus, by unalloyed intelligence, the mind is brought into the service of the Lord. The Lord and his service are identical, being on the absolute plane. Therefore, the unalloyed, unalloyed intelligence and the mind are merged into the Lord. And thus, the living entity does not remain a seer himself, but becomes seen by the Lord transcendentally. 
when the living entity is directly seen by the Lord, the Lord dictates to him to act according to his desire. And when the living entity follows imperfectly, the living entity ceases to discharge any other duty for his illusory satisfaction. In his pure unalloyed state, the living being attains the full stage of full bliss, labdho pashanti, and ceases all material hankerings. I'll take a couple of reflections. Or questions. You can turn the Zoom room back on. What did you hear that stuck in your mind that you can relate back? Hey, Krishna. Yes, Devavrata. I was appreciating this point about one should be intelligent enough to understand that the living entity is, in all circumstances, a servant of the circumstances. And uh, I was just appreciating that because I've been in a circumstance where I've definitely been the servant of the circumstance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's partly this, the meaning of marginal. Whatever situation we get in, we're molded by that circumstance. And because it's our constitutional position to serve, in every circumstance, we take up serving the circumstance. So it's best to prearrange what one's circumstance will be by tanama rupa charitaru sikirtananu smityo karmina rasanamana being um, organized around the principle of hearing and chanting and being around those who hear and chant. Thank can you. I reflect? Can I reflect on what you just said? Yes. Yeah, just to kind of amend what I was saying, I've been in a circumstance where I really have no control over what's happening externally, but I have been able to stay connected with transcendental vibration. And by doing that, although the circumstances externally to anyone else, even just like reflecting on it myself, it's supposed to be a very frustrating circumstance. But because I'm able to arrange things where I am connecting with transcendental vibration on a daily basis, become very untouched by it. It's like that verse in the Bhagavad Gita, like a lotus above the muddy water. You just become, the water just rushes off. So thank you for um, bringing sure. that point up, Burmarsh. Now you got my curiosity. I think I'll ask you afterwards where you are right now. <laughs> and by the way, everyone, welcome to ISV. We're open 24 hours, seven days a week now. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna, Krishna Bali I think the amazing part was uh, like you are describing Canto, how to remember Krishna's lotus feet and his chest. There is more purification than jumping into like 10th Canto, at least the five chapter how Prabhupada wanted to really ensure that we assimilate all the knowledge from Canto 1 to 9, read multiple times then we are qualified to read 10th canto. That was very good realization from my end. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Yes, yeah, so we've been noting the gentle, gradual process through which Shukadeva Goswami is taking us from impersonalism and gradually coming into focus, noticing the various assets of the material world. And don't they come from a benevolent source? Aren't they providing you? Aren't the animals being taken care of and so forth? And then coming to the more focused meditation on the super soul and then coming to the, the very personal meditation on the personality of Godhead and so forth. And also we heard 
that Prabhupada said that meditating on the deity for the Vaishnavas is the way in which we purify the mind. Um, of course, we can always see Krishna in the Virata Rupa, but he's so fully present in the deity and the archa form so mercifully appeared in that form. If you go to the temple and you just sit and look at the deity, he'll never complain, say, stop staring at me. <laughs> On the contrary, one will feel more and more reciprocation from the deity by just directing one's attention on the form of the Lord. It's palpable. Palpable and visceral. Yes. So, um, As David Ratha said. So um, in the purport of verse 14, Prabhupada says, um, the living entities are also his marginal potency, and by their own choice, they can live in either the transcendental or material worlds. And I found this very interesting because if Krishna is so powerful that he can create um, the material world and the spiritual world and us, why is it that he cannot also create our minds in such a way that we're automatically attracted to him? But um, it harps on the fact that a relationship or true relationship is based on this component of choice and free will. And um, by having that, we, we are given this opportunity to build a true loving relationship with the Lord. And that's something that even he cherishes and he gives us the opportunity to do beyond his own power of being able to create all these worlds. So I thought that was Thank very powerful. Thank you, Priya, for elucidating that important philosophical point. Thank you. Yes. In this last purport which you read, you know, it talks about the mind and I like that place where Prabhupada says, A little closer. When mind acts under spiritual urge, it acts wonderfully for going back home, back to Godhead, for life in complete bliss and eternity. So you know, the mind can be, you know, it's not that it's always revolting. It can be brought under the spiritual yeah. urge. And we have to turn the corner because we know how active the mind is at pursuing matter. and when we come through this anartha nivritti and we are able to to then transfer that enthusiasm we have for acquiring profit to understanding that all profit comes from our devotional service and serving the lord then it's all good there's no risk and there's no hindrance to our progress at, at any time and that's a it's it's not well understood because most people think that the solution to the troublesome senses is to stop them altogether. And here at the outset of Srimad Bhagavatam, we find that, no, you have to transfer your attention elsewhere. Prabhupada begins with that in the introduction of the Bhagavad Gita as it is also. He said the Vedic literatures are there to transfer our intelligence from reading mundane subject matter to transcendental subject matter. And that's one of the great benefits of the Krishna consciousness movement. It's one of the only movements that not only teach that it's a matter of redirecting one's attention, but also give the subject matter and the forms to which one can direct one's attention. Uh, other people don't have that because they're not well informed through the Srimad Bhagavatam. Oh, yes, Radhakripa Prabhu. Uh, Maharaj, when you are uh, uh, reading the purport of Srila Prabhupada, uh, somehow I 
we started thinking about how Prabhupada took so much pain for us in the middle of the night, you know. <laughs> I was just thinking about how, you know, my, by reading a one uh, verse it itself, you know, then explaining to a depth so that we can understand. I was just feeling like, you know, and we owe it to him, you know, he has done so much for us. Uh, I hope, you know, uh, we, uh, we, you know, it's very, it's very difficult to what he has done for us, but at least by paying attention to what he has said, that itself could satisfy maybe a little bit him we value. So I was really appreciating and uh, thanking Prabhupada for his uh, tireless work which he has done for all of us. So, In fact, it's mentioned uh, that, or Prabhupada mentions in a purport, that we have a debt to the rishis and all of the sampradaya who have painstakingly passed down this information to us and so we should repay it. A realization I've had in the same vein as what you're mentioning, is in realizing how much Prabhupada gave his life and energy and sacrificed to write these books, although one may not be able to write such books or give such energy to writing, we can certainly try to give that same kind of energy to reading them. And that's specifically one of the things he asked us to do. And if, if we try to increase the duration and the intensity through which we hear Prophet's books, then that's a perfect relationship because he spoke them and wrote them and asked us to read them. Prabhu. Hi, Krishna. I like two phrases that Prabhupada used in the uh, purports. One where uh, he is describing the anarthas. He says, artificially acquired. They're, they're not natural. And the other place where he's uh, describing it's the material world is not fit place for uh, the jiva is is unfettered uh, uh, condition. Yeah. Yeah. Very poetical and helpful concepts, aren't they? Yeah. Artificial desires. Yes. And we have Gandharvika uh, before we go back to our reading. Gandharvika, are you ready? Yes, Prabhu. Uh, I have a realization and also a question, Prabhu. I'm wondering how Prabhupada is calling this as a humors of the body. Like he says, um, how everybody is working under the dictations of desire, anger, lust, illusion, insanity, and enviousness. Sometimes we think that, uh, oh, if I overcome my enemy or uh, I get much better than my enemy, I'm happy. And we spend almost whole life in that desire or anger or enviousness. But then Prabhupada says like he's perpetually unhappy. So that, that is, uh, that's, that's how true it is in our real lives. And then three, four sentences later, I, I just saw how Prabhupada writes that um, the living entity's intelligence then becomes freed from the unhappy illusion of materialistic temperament and thus by unalloyed intelligence the mind is brought into the service of the lord can you explain more on that unalloyed intelligence prabhu we have heard about unalloyed love but what is unalloyed intelligence the senses are meant to serve krishna therefore the process of devotional service is succinctly defined in the verse Sarvopadi Vanir Muktam Tapratvena Nirmalam Rishikena Rishikesha Sevanam Bhaktiruchite. 
Krishna is called Rishikesh. He's the master of the senses. Really, he is. It's it's a it's true. We're not making this up. And then, uh, when we serve Krishna with our senses, that's the purpose of the senses, because he's the master of the senses. And when we do that, our senses become purified, and they're in their true, in their purified state of existence. They're uh, full of bliss and. Our, we, we become fully aware of our eternal existence and we're in our happy state. So uh, intelligence is there, but it gets covered by this principle of upadi. That I, the example that Rupa Goswami gives is a, a clear crystal. When you put a red rose next to it, the crystal appears to be red. And it's not red, it just appears that way. So when our intelligence is in contact with matter and we're directing it towards material enjoyment rather than serving the master of the senses, then it's tinged and it causes us all this consternation. But when we become purified through serving in the practice of devotional service and gradually, gradually our intelligence becomes invigorated in fact, it's mentioned in the first canto, second chapter, that man whose mind has become enlivened by devotional service, evam prasanna manaso, bhagavad bhakti yogata, he, it, it becomes joyful. Because now the intelligence is free to in, uh, think of how to serve Krishna, and there's no limitation to it. In material existence, the intelligence tinged by lust is thinking how to enjoy for myself and there's always a ending point which Krishna says is the source of all misery the intelligence of a person uh, who's becoming purified thinks that I don't want to engage in the material existence because it's just a botheration.